0: A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back to Experiential Theology. This is episode three. Today, we're devoting our time to talking about an essay by Peter Taylor Forsyth entitled The Atonement in Modern Religious Thought. It was published in 1907. It's out of copyright. We will link to it so that you can read it. We're going to devote two episodes to this. So episode three and episode four. And today we're going to cover 11 remarks that he makes on this subject of the atonement. So Ben is here with me. He will join us in a bit. Uh, Before we begin, I, Juan, would like to talk about Carbot a little bit. He is known, of course, for the church dogmatics, and he has a number of volumes on the subject of reconciliation, which is the same thing as atonement, another name. And at the very beginning, he makes the remark that once he starts going into that subject, he has to be extremely careful because it is central to Christian faith and to err or to make mistakes on this one subject would be disastrous to the whole of dogmatics. So it's very, very important that when we're talking about atonement, we do so responsibly, humbly, and that we realize that we're talking about the heart of the Christian faith. With that in mind, we're going to begin. So again, we're going to cover 11 remarks that Peter Taylor Forsyth makes here. And I'm going to read the first one. Number one. Again, this is a summary. He says, we have outgrown the idea that God has to be reconciled. Okay, brief commentary here. So... The church has been talking about the tome for 2,000 years. There are different theories. There are different ideas out there. And one very poor and bad idea floating out there in the internet, everywhere, books, is that God has to be reconciled to us. So in other words, God cannot be merciful to us. God does not love us until somehow he satisfies his own wrath on the cross, then and only then can he be good to us. Then and only then can we access his grace. This is very wrong. And here, just in passing, Forsyth says we have outgrown this idea. And you're gonna hear this phrase time and time again. The reason being that Forsyth really believes that the church has been theologizing for 2000 years and our ideas have gone through an evolution of sorts when it com- when it comes to certain subjects, certain ideas, and this is definitely one that he would say we have outgrown. Any thoughts? Yeah, I can I say that? something about that? Yeah,
1: he in, Elser, in his writing, Peter Forsyth talks about what he calls um, the moralization of dogma, and this is the idea that the things that Christians believe over time are going to change and evolve. And, he's, and he thinks they're going to involve it under the guidance of a, of a moral principle of some sort. And, and so, uh, for instance, he talks about how a very early theory of the atonement in Christianity is, um, is roughly called Christus Victor, or Christ defeating the powers. Um, and and it, it's almost a caricature at this point in church history, where the idea is that Jesus somehow deceives the devil, in the process of of, 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 sacri- of allowing himself to be killed on the cross. And that this, and then when the devil takes the bait, he's sort of caught like a hook. I, I don't know which church father talked this way, like, like catching a fish. And it's like, okay, that's a theory of the atonement, but we can do better than that over time as we start to, as, as we, as Christianity, as the church sort of grows into a deeper understanding of the moral significance of the death of Christ. Um, so so we should expect our ideas of the atonement to change over time in, in a morally improved direction as we as we sort of reflect on it and grasp it. And this is so this is why we have Forsyth saying a lot of negative things about different theories of the atonement. Not that he thinks that they're necessarily horrible, um, but he says we're moving from faith to faith. We're moving from our best understanding at a certain time and place to hopefully a better understanding in another future time and place. And yeah, so the idea that the atonement of Christ is to reconcile God to us, to change the angry God into a loving God. That's a mistake. It, God has the initiative in the atonement. God's love for humanity is what causes the atonement to happen in the first place. So God is reconciling us to himself and not the other way around.
0: Yeah, I think they also call it the ransom theory. And even yes. An- Anselm, with his satisfaction theory, I believe, Yes. Uh, he criticized this quite a bit. So yeah, I think we have said enough here. We're going to move on. Again, today we're going to have many negative statements. For the next episode, we're going to have much more positive or constructive uh, comments by P.T. Forces. All right, let's move on to the second one. Two. We have outgrown the idea that redemption caused the father nothing, that he had only to receive the payment or even the sacrifice which the son had made." Okay, so my commentary here. So again, there are very different ideas out there on the atonement. So we have Patripassianism, right? which was the idea that the father himself suffered, that the father himself died almost on the cross. So that's one extreme. The other extreme would be this one to say that God in his holiness is so removed from our world that he cannot suffer at all in any way, shape or form. It's more of a Greek metaphysics God concept here. And so he is talking about the idea that God was in no way affected by the son's work of atonement. He would say that is wrong. In some way, the father himself suffered. Uh, Ben, any thoughts? Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I think that the, I think that the, that's right. And the idea is roughly that it's not that God demands a sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. That's That's um, something that a theme that you'll find in the old Testament and then into new Testament theology as well. Um, HR McIntosh, who's another contemporary of Peter Forsyth, who I really appreciate. He says really simply that atonement is the cost of forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs something. Um, It usually hurts to forgive because you have to let something go at the very least. And, uh, and so atonement and forgiveness coming together it's going to cost the forgiver something it's going to hurt to forgive and and so the the for for god to forgive is going to hurt god to some extent and i think that um like you said patrick was seen as a flaw in theology the idea that god can suffer through christ on the cross but i think it's a great feature honestly i think in the modern in modern theology we're not maybe after Moltmann and others, we're not comfortable with the idea of a God who doesn't feel what we feel in any way. Um, so I think we're in safe ground to, to just admit that the atonement cost God something and, it, and that God suffers when Jesus suffers.
0: Great. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to move on to number three. Little by little, we're going to build on the same ideas in greater depth, as you'll see. Number three, he says, we have outgrown the idea that Christ took our punishment in the quantitative sense of the word. What he offered was not an equivalent. So also, there can be no imputation as transfer of quantitative merit. We are agreeing To see that what fell upon him was not the equivalent punishment of sin, but the due judgment of it, its condemnation.
1: I think this is very good. This is a very important point. Um, Because I think many, many evangelicals are in the grips of this idea at the moment. Um, So remember we said that theology should improve over time. It's called the moralization of dogma for Peter Forsyth. So the ransom theory um, was the theory that God paid Satan what it needed to get his people back, like a kidnapper. Um, and that didn't seem really morally robust. And so in the Middle Ages you have the the satisfaction theory, or the um, where where God needs to be, where God is the one that needs to be paid, not Satan. And so the idea is that Christ's death um, cancels our debt. And debt is a very mathematical concept. It's sort of, uh, if I owe you $20, the only way to solve that problem is to give you $20 or for someone else to give you $20. And so, yes, this may be an improvement on ransom atonement, but it's it's we can still improve on it quite a bit. And I think that Forsyth has already left us behind. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to suffer the equivalent suffering to everyone else who should ever undergo judgment. It, it just boggles the mind to even think that this is a, a plan for, for theology. Uh, and and I, the only reason you would really want this is because you got no place else to go. But there are other ways to look at the atonement that do a much better job
0: than this. Um, yeah. yeah, excellent. Also, I think a lot of times really conservative and ultra-reform type Christians say that our sin deserves infinite punishment, right? But then Jesus apparently was on the cross for only a few hours. But the way they get around it is they say, well, in his divinity, because he is the infinite God, God the Son, he is able to pay the infinite payment in a finite amount of time again, it's out there. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's out there. And so- I've heard of it, yeah. Forsyth would say, absolutely not. That is not what is happening here. Later on, on we're gonna get to what is happening, but for the time being, he's saying, this is not what is happening on the cross.
1: Go ahead. This, This back of the envelope calculation is just ridiculous. Like I'm a mathematician, you're a math teacher. There's a lot of different kinds of infinity out there. Like, are we talking about the infinites of the real numbers or the rational numbers? Like there's an infinitely more real than rational numbers, for instance. And like, it just, if you're, if your two categories are finite and infinite and you just mash them together to get an answer to your questions, it's not going to really work so great. So I, it's, it's just, it's just a, it's really a morally bankrupt approach to, to this, to just say that God is a cosmic accountant who wants to get all the books settled exactly right. That's not how, reconciliation and forgiveness really work between persons that's an economics or or mathematical approach to things that that is really missing what 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 i would consider to be the treasures of the christian faith in a big way and worse than missing it it's blocking it for those people who are in the grips of this thinking
0: yes exactly right okay let's move on to number four he says We are only just escaping from the modern and sentimental idea of love, which found no difficulty placed by the holy law of God's nature in his way of forgiveness. Okay, so this is one of my favorite comments that he makes because I mean, I can relate on it quite a bit. I mean, I remember for years just rationalizing. I mean, just what's the big deal? Why can't he just forgive? Like, I don't understand. Why do we need this cross in the middle? Like, it never made sense to me. I accepted it. But for the longest time, I can relate to this idea of, well, I mean, the love of God is just infinite. It's amazing. I mean, why do we have to do so much to forgive, overcome, and overpower sin. I don't understand. So I can definitely relate. Absolutely, I can relate to this quite a bit. And this is one of the central themes in Forces Books and Articles, the idea that God is holy and that in the atonement, what is being satisfied is not so much the law of Moses, but the holy law of God's essential nature. So God is holy, and because God is holy, God reacts to sin as he does. Go yes. ahead, Ben.
1: Yes, um, so what I was thinking about here is this idea that, uh, and Forsyth elsewhere does this, where revelation and atonement, or revelation and redemption are basically considered to be the same thing. So if you say, if you say to me, well, why can't God just forgive? Just forgive. Stop being so uptight, God. <laughs> if you just forgive, it would solve the problems. Like, um, Well, if God were to just forgive, then God is giving up on transformation. If that makes any sense. If God were to say, okay, I won't hold it against you. You do what you want. I'll let you go your own way. You're forgiven. You'll find no more harm coming to you from me. Well, what this does is it just leaves humans to our own devices. And I think that the biblical concept of the judgment of God is basically God leaving humans to their own devices. Is that when we are left to our own devices, we do terrible things to one another. Uh, And... And in many ways, that's what the cross of Christ is about. It's the idea that God sends a son to the vineyard, to the people who are taking care of it and wanting to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And God makes God's self vulnerable to the vineyard tenants. This is Jesus's parable. And then they kill him. This is the judgment of God, that God would allow humans to kill God's son. It's it's God standing back and allowing us to go our own way, and and it reveals who we really are when this happens. Um, and the revelation that we that we need is we need a revelation of the nature of God. We need to know what God is like, what goodness is, what what love really is. Um, and a sort of a cheap forgiveness would give up on all of those goals. It wouldn't it would just give up on accomplishing anything in the nature of redemption it would just it would just be it would just be the judgment of god
0: through god's absence really so yeah great thank you all right let's move on to number 5 5 says we have outgrown also the other extreme that forgiveness cost so much that it was impossible to god till justice was appeased and mercy set free by the blood of Christ.
1: Yeah, this is kind of the same thing as the first point, I believe, um, which was that we've outgrown the idea that we need, that God needs to be reconciled to us. God is seeking reconciliation in the, in, in, the, in the Christian doctrine of atonement, which is really a lot of doctrines, but Um, God is seeking our reconciliation. And so it's not that God is standing back waiting for the conditions to be right. Um, God is making those conditions right. So God is seeking to forgive um, and he's seeking to redeem. And that involves revealing to us the things that we're blind to. Yeah, it's not a matter of waiting for the the account to be settled or the books to be balanced. Um,
0: It's much more wholesome than that excellent thank you all right let's move on to number six we have further left the idea behind that the satisfaction of christ was made either to god's wounded honor or to his punitive justice and we see with growing and united clearness that it was made by obedience rather than by suffering okay so to me this is huge the idea that ultimately Christ's work in atonement is crowned not so much by the fact that he suffered and died on the cross, that's the climax, but by the fact that he was obedient to the point of death, like Paul says, right, in Philippians 2. So Jesus lived a life of complete obedience and trust and surrender to the Father. And that is how as our representative, he accomplished redemption. So yes, it happened on the cross, but the cross is the the climax of his life's work. And I think it's huge and important to, to highlight that it's the obedience of Christ. He satisfied the holiness of God, not just some punitive law that says anything or anyone, related to sin must die or be punished.
1: Yes, this is connected back to um, the earlier comments about quantitative, um, the quantitative effect of the suffering of Christ. And, and if you reject the idea that it's the quantity of Christ's suffering as an equivalent amount of suffering, to satisfy God's desire for us to suffer as a result of sin. Like it's a really nasty web that can get tangled up here. And Forsyth is really cutting all of the strands one at a time here. Um, it's, it's not about the suffering at all. Uh, obedience involves suffering just because God wanted to make God's self vulnerable to God's people by sending a son to the tenants in the vineyard and allowing them to do what they pleased with him it's the obedience that led to the suffering. God didn't seek the suffering as an end unto itself. And um, I really feel strongly about this. I was in a small group at work years ago, and um, we had it was Easter time, and we took communion together. And there was a chaplain there who, he just like spent, it felt like 10 minutes just trying to magnify the suffering of christ as we were going to take this communion and i felt like it was just so horribly misguided and such a mistake to eclipse the obedience of christ by his suffering and um what god asks of us is our obedience he doesn't ask us to suffer he asks us to obey that might lead to suffering of course but but there's a lot of shortcuts to suffering if that's what you're really aiming for it's called self-harm Obedience is a much richer and
0: life-giving thing. Yeah. Great. All right. Number seven is very much linked to number six. It says, we can no longer separate Christ's life of obedience from his expiatory death. He was obedient, not simply in death, but unto death. So I get no comment from me because I, I feel like it's so strongly related to number six. Any thoughts, Ben?
1: Well, I think all he's trying to say here is that the death is the climax of the obedience, um, but the whole life is a life of obedience. And so Forsyth wants us to see the whole life of Jesus as a life of obedience. And this whole life together is part of the work of Christ, a life of obedience that happens to be unto death. Um, So that's good. I think a lot of people, um, if, if the purpose of Christ is just to suffer an equivalent amount, which it is emphatically not, but if that's what you think, then everything about Jesus is irrelevant until he's nailed up on the cross. Um, yeah. When really that was just like the natural outcome of his obedience unto death, given the people God sent him to uh, to, to present God's character to. Um, so, so I, I really like this focus on the obedience ahead of the suffering because it allows us to include his whole life in his work in a more meaningful way.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to number eight. I suspect we're going to spend a good amount here. Eight. We are, I hope, all giving up the tendency to twist scripture into support of our theories, orthodox or liberal. In particular, scholarship more and more unanimously compels us to give up the Roman idea that justifying in St. Paul means making just and not declaring just. Or that the righteousness of God means the ethical attribute of God conveyed to us rather than the gift of God as a status conferred on us. On such points the all theology and the new exegesis unite. The finality of Paul's authority, of course, is a separate question, but his meaning should no longer be in dispute. Okay, so again, I think it's important to remember, Forsyth is writing this in 1907. It's more than a hundred years ago. A lot has happened since, but I would still say that his points here are valid and and they remain. Uh, There has been a revival in Pauline studies, so as many of you have heard, we have the, uh, what do they call it? The new... New and old perspectives on Paul. Yes, the new perspectives. So we have N.T. Wright, we have Douglas Campbell, we have John Barclay. Uh, There are many other Pauline scholars, I would say as of the last 20 years, who have done a great deal of work on trying to understand the Apostle Paul in Judaism in light of his context in the first century. And they've given us great information, but I would say that what Fawcett says here still stands. He reminds us that uh, the Apostle Paul's theology is key for us, and especially as Protestants. I mean, Protestantism without saying Paul just wouldn't exist, period. So it is imperative that we pay attention to the apostle Paul, that we keep up with the studies on his thought. And I would absolutely agree with uh, Forsyth on what he says here, that uh, we have to not twist the scriptures to support what we wanna believe, whether they be orthodox or liberal ideas. And uh, yeah, we have to be careful and we have to study so we can figure out just what does justification mean? What is the righteousness of God? And again, we have we have a plethora of answers right now. Go ahead. I'm I'm done. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you've read a couple books on Paul, you realize that there's like a there's almost like a Pauline industrial complex out there. And sort of, I'm just so difficult to weigh in on any of this stuff without sounding like an idiot. (laughs) But um, nevertheless, uh, I I think the last sentence of this little section here is good. Um, He says the finality of Paul's authority, of course, is a separate question, but its meaning should no longer be in dispute. And I really like this about Peter Forsyth. He He basically says his approach to the Bible is like, figure out what it means, what the authors mean, and then decide if you agree with them. And that's a really good approach. I think a lot, of, uh, a, lot, a lot of Christians, they'll say, let's figure out what Paul means, and then we'll believe that without even knowing what he means before they, figure, before they commit to believe it. Um, and then, of course, they just make sure that Paul means something that they're willing to swallow, right? But if you're willing to figure out what Paul means without f- promising in advance to just believe what he means... Then you could actually just find out what he means. It just takes the stakes down a little bit. You have the freedom to let Paul say what he says, and then decide through the through the Spirit, using your own human responsibility, whether you're willing to agree with that and live that out yourself or not. And I think that that's a very good approach. So, I think in terms of Forsyth often has the the Catholic Church. He says the Roman idea here as his as is as a bit of an antagonist. Um, as a bit of a counterpart in in theology, he's interested in distinguishing himself from Catholic theology. And I, just to dabble here in what he's saying, I don't know, it sounds like what he's saying is something along the lines that he wants to get rid of this Roman idea, what he calls the Roman idea, who knows if it really is what Catholics think, um, that the righteousness of God is something that is infused into us in a kind of a sacramental way that we receive the righteousness of God uh, in an intangible sacramental way. And he wants to say, he wants to really keep, he, he always reinterprets sacraments in the context of person to person relationship. And so for him, the righteousness of God is, is something more along the lines of something that's true in our relationship to God. Uh, it's not, it's not a magical substance that is infused to us through a ceremony or through a sacrament. It is our status in this relationship with God. It's in this I, thou encounter with God that the righteousness of God is something we can talk about. I think that's what he's trying to get at or that I think that's faithful to the rest of his writing as far as I know.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot has happened since the time of the reformers. But even 500 years later, I find that in many ways, they're an excellent guide to understanding Paul. And of course, we have to say no in some points, but... I would say overall, the reformers really understood the grace of God in a way that is still very helpful to us today. And we should uh, still read them and study them. And at the same time, of course, uh, as we have time, keep up with uh, Pauline studies and what they come up with. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Number nine. We're leaving behind us, to all appearance, the hazy idea that we have the fact of the atonement and that no theory need be or can be found. So this sounds like
1: um, C.S. Lewis. Do you know where he wrote this somewhere? In one of his books, he says something along the lines of, the atonement, it just works. Okay. So stop arguing about how it works. Do you remember that? Uh, no, no, okay. I don't. And that, uh, you know, that that sounds good. Cause people, often people in the pew at churches, they just feel a little bit intimidated by theology. Why is that? Well, maybe because there's a whole professional class of people who want to make themselves useful by being the pastors who want to tell them what the theology is. So it's sort of like, a, this is for the professionals. Um, and I think that that's a big mistake. I think that, I think that anybody uh, who's interested should just pick up the books, which are free online in many cases, uh, and, 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 and learn for themselves what they want to know. Um, but anyway, I think that for Forsyth, the atonement is really the treasure of the Christian faith. And, and, uh, and the only way to get to that treasure is to spend time interpreting it as a community and individually. So the atonement isn't some black box that just happens, uh, something happens that affects us that we don't understand, we don't know about. Um, Sure, many of us don't understand it, but it's in this process of trying to understand it and trying to be faithful to it and judging everything else against our best understanding of it. Like interpreting the atonement is the life's work of a Christian. You interpret it in the practical ways and the practical decisions you make. So, so, yes, we we don't want to give the ground to the intellectualist Christians who want to tell you exactly how the atonement works. Like it's good to maybe shut them up a little bit once in a while by just saying it just works whether I understand it or not. That's true. And I think that maybe that's what C.S. Lewis was saying. But... Um, but it is our life's work as Christians to try to understand the atonement in an, ex- in an existentially significant way, which involves thinking about it, reflecting on it, and just allowing it to inform everything else in our life and, and theology and, and faith. So 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 that's why Forsythe pretty much nine out of 10 times is talking about the atonement. That's just what he does as a theologian. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and even if we took the stance of saying, okay, we're just gonna stick to the Bible. Anytime (laughs) you read the Bible, there are going to be embedded in all the atonement verses an atonement theory or theme or idea of some sort. So it's inevitable. You're gonna have to deal with it. Yeah. Okay, number 10. We are abandoning the idea that any adequate treatment of this great and solemn theme can rest on the basis of a merely personal experience. Amateur and dilettante theologizing, however devout, is by its very individualism disqualified for any very valuable verdict on such a universal theme. Okay, so, P.T. Forsyth here is highlighting the idea that the atonement is, it's it's a universal theme. We're dealing with God here and we're dealing not just with Jesus, we are, but with Jesus and his work for all of humanity. So it's a huge subject, it's a huge theme. And so I don't think P.T. Forsyth is saying that we shouldn't have our own thoughts, but what he is saying is that it's quite unlikely that we're going to be able to study the atonement and just come up with our own unique unheard of take and just quote unquote figure it out right that's not going to happen i love the fact that pt Forsyth charitably and critically uh studies all of church history the reformers and He is big on the idea that the entire church, the universal church is still on this quest to a deeper and more meaningful understanding of the work of atonement. And it is taking the work of all the churches, all the Christians, all the theologians in every church age period to crystallize and to ever get closer to an understanding of what it is that occurred in the finished work of the atonement by jesus christ go ahead ben yeah he says
1: um like he, he treats he treats church history uh much like he treats the bible uh he doesn't he doesn't um idolize the bible he has a critical approach to it but he treasures it and he draws out treasures from it and and he's he's got the same approach to the church he sees the church and the bible as sort of two products of the gospel the gospel produced a bible and a church mm-hmm. yeah and these it's almost like a um, a senate and a house of representatives they sort of hold each other in check uh or they should anyway i'm not sure how it's going down there <laughs> <laughs> but but the the gospel produced the bible and the gospel produced the church and um and so he, he says that we, the, if we fall back on experience, the question is too vast for any single experience. What we must use is the experience of the church. And even that is not final. The Bible might still save us from the church. So I think that's, that's really good. Like when we talk about experiential theology, we're not just talking about everything that I've concluded from my own narrow experience. My experience of the world is quite limited and getting an education is basically learning from the experiences of others. That's what education is all about um, through their writing and through their, their discoveries and research. And we do the same thing in theology. Like we look around and we see who out there has experienced something uh, and how did they describe it? And how does that connect with what I'm experiencing? And, and we got to and, and the church and church history and the Bible are tremendous resources for that. We can look for people who have experienced something like what we're experiencing, and we can ask how they understood it, how did they interpret it? And then we still have the responsibility to interpret for ourselves, but we just can't go at it cold like we were the first people to experience the gospel because we certainly were not.
0: Yeah. Uh, I like what you were saying about uh, PT Forsyth using both the Bible and church history as a treasure, but as a treasure that must be critically claimed. Uh, It also reminds me of other times in his books where he says that it's easy, it's easy to dunk on the early church, right? (laughs) For for some of their ideas, right? Like the ransom to the devil and so forth. But he always says, look, look behind that. There is the gospel behind that. They were really doing their best to explain the gospel in the tongue of the day. And it just so happened that at the time, metaphysics was the language in which religion had to function. And And so it did. But we are not in that day and age today. And we have moved beyond that. We affirm the same reality, but not the same conceptuality, I guess he would say.
1: Yes, exactly. It's sort of like um, it's one thing to experience the gospel, and it's another thing to describe that experience. The descriptions are always very limited. Um, just just because you've experienced the gospel doesn't mean you are a super articulate theologian who can really describe it well. That's what it is to be human. We we try to describe what we experience with more or less success, and so. So there's no reason to think that the early church was a particularly gifted group of articulate people. They were just people, the first to experience uh, the gospel. And, uh, and, they, and they did what they could. And then, and hopefully we can experience something worth describing today as well. And, and it's only by looking at church history that we can sort of test for continuity and see, are we even talking about the same thing Am I describing the same thing that has been described in every generation? Yeah,
0: Yeah. exactly. Okay, well, we have reached the end. We're going to talk about number 11, and I think my favorite so far. So for this one, I'm actually going to read the entire paragraph. Here we go. Expiation and forgiveness, it has been said, are mutually exclusive. If a sin has been expiated, the account is cleared. There is then no need of forgiveness or question of grace. This was the criticism of Socinius on Anselm. May we hope that we are beyond that, that it is seen to miss the mark as soon as the quantitative and equivalent theory of Christ's suffering is giving up. Of course, An expiatory amount of penalty purges the offense and the debt being paid, the culprit is beholden to no grace for his open door. But if we say that God, who had a right to destroy each sinner, offers pardon to those who really own in the cross the kind, not the amount, of penalty which their sin deserved, then the contradiction vanishes grace is still sovereign free and unbought it is grace in god to accept an atonement which is not an equivalent but a practical adequate and superhuman acknowledgement in man of the awful debt for god
1: so what do you like so much about this i'm curious i think the
0: very first sentence because i mean I think modern people we just we we really have this deep in our hearts expiation and forgiveness are mutually exclusive. I just can't help to relate to. I mean this is what liberal Christianity would say, right? And
1: I just think idea do we cancel the debt or do we repay the debt? Which is it?
0: That's kind of the dilemma that right. And so I mean, I, I I feel this. I really do. And I relate to it. I mean, why, why, why can we not say that they're mutually exclusive? Or another way to put it is how can we say that the grace is free if Christ had to sort of make a payment or if he had to die or if he had to suffer? It's, it's difficult. I, I really, really relate to a lot of liberals, right? And universalists and whatnot. Like, how can this be? But Forsyth here explains that it's not a quantitative one-to-one equality, and God Himself is providing the quote unquote payment, right? And it is grace that he would accept this atonement on behalf of all our sins or to clear all of our sins. So, yeah, I mean, I I really feel this, uh, not just intellectually, but deep down in my soul. I, I feel this. I, I can relate.
1: Yeah, maybe um, I, I think that probably one of my favorite parables about the atonement is Jesus's parable about the tenants in the vineyard. And I brought it up a couple of times already. Um, So the, the, this man owns a vineyard, he rents it out to tenants and their job is to make, is to make fruit and give it to fruit and give it to him. And so I think the analogy here is that the fruit is, is justice. The God is the owner of the vineyard and God wants the people who have, who, who take care of the vineyard, that's us, to bear fruit for God, which is treat each other well with justice and love. And instead, we don't do that. We hoard the fruit for ourselves. Um, the tenants do that. And so God, the owner, sends a bunch of messengers saying, give me what I want, which is for you to treat each other well, basically. And, and, and they're each of these messengers are ignored and um, ignored and, and, and harmed and maybe killed. And these and these are the prophets in the in the in the in the parables like the prophets that god sent to Israel were not able to turn the tide and to and to give god the fruit that god wants um, which is in all of our best interest for that to happen anyway so god finally says i'll send my son surely they will respect him and why is that it's because the son is basically supposed to be just like the father if you Gonna it's the basically the idea of like father, like son. If you hate the son, you're gonna hate the father. If you hate the father, you're gonna hate the son. So the so when, when God sends God's son, when the owner sends the owner's son to the vineyard, it's a chance for everybody to see really clearly whether or not they hate God or whether they love God. It's a manifestation of the character of God, which leads to revelation that they either hate God's character or they love God's character. Now everybody in the gospels thinks that they love God. The enemies of Jesus all think that they love God and that God is against Jesus. We need the revelation of whether we actually love God or not, <laughs> and that's what the cross does. It's a revelation that says this is what God is really like and you hate it. That's what the revelation is. Um And yet, this love of God is still on offer to us. And so it's not so much about balancing any books or balancing an account. It's about a revelation that actually does something. It's not about the passage of information. It's about revealing humans' posture towards God uh, and towards the character of God. This is why the character of God is so important in all this and not just the need to balance any books or get even. Um, It's about revealing our posture towards the character of God. Yeah. So I feel like I'm getting a little bit lost here, but, um, and so that the idea here is that when Jesus uh, has obedience unto death, Jesus shows that God is worth it, that God is worth loving and trusting, even in the midst of this judgment where God is allowing humans to go their own way and kill God's best representative. So, and then the last sentence here says it's the grace of God to accept an atonement, which is not equivalent, but a practical adequate and superhuman acknowledgement in man of the awful debt for God. Um, The only people who understand what's going on at the death of Christ are Jesus and his father. Nobody else gets it. So Jesus is the only one to really appreciate the significance of what's happening. Um, and he appreciates it on behalf of all humanity and and that's kind of what we enter into with atonement is that if we can appreciate what jesus appreciated if we can feel the weight of our violence towards him and not god's violence towards him it's our violence towards him then we're entering into um what Forsyth calls being those who really own in the cross, the kind, not the amount of penalty that their sin deserved. Yeah. So I, th- I think that was a little bit of a ramble, but I think I got a little bit more positive towards the end, which sets us up for next time.
0: No, I think this is the perfect way to end it. Like I said, I think this is the most important point. And what I meant by that is not that I had great commentary on this point, but rather that I really feel the conflict in my mind, in my heart, when I read what he says in point 11 here. I mean, before I read PT forces, I would have vehemently denied that there was any type of way in which the atonement could be described, analyzed, or taught with an idea of a penal substitution of some sort, absolutely not! it. like. No way I would accept it. But once I was able to look at it from Forsyth's perspective, I have to say that he won me over. He won me over. And I think we'll leave it at that here because we're going to talk about that on the next episode. On the next episode, we're going to talk about more positive remarks. All of these have been critical or negative. The next episode, we're going to make positive remarks with P.T. Forsyth tells us and shows us a better way to talk about the atonement, to preach the atonement, and to live in light of the atonement. So you. If you thank can you. forgive
1: me for a second. I do want to say one more thing, though. Go ahead. Because um, I know the word penal substitution, it brings up a model for a lot of people. Um, and I, yeah, so how can I put this? Um, I think that penal substitution in many people's mind is the idea that God does violence to Jesus in order to substitute the violence that God would have done to us. And I, and I think that I want to reject that. um, And we'll see what Forsyth says next week, but I, I think in my framework, what I, which is inspired by Forsyth in many ways, what's really happening is that the judgment of God is to allow us to do violence to one another. That's the judgment of God that we are permitted to do violence to one another, that God is not intervening and stopping it immediately. And and the judgment of God on Christ is that God allows us to do violence to Jesus. Not that God does violence to Jesus, but that God allows us to do what's in our heart towards God's best representative. So, So it's really important to keep track of where the violence is coming from and what judgment mean? Judgment, I don't think, is God acting in violence towards other people, but allowing our, allowing our actions to play out in really horrific ways. And so for Christ to be obedient unto death is to be obedient in the sphere of God's judgment, is to be obedient in the environment of judgment, an environment in which violence happens to those who manifest the character of God so it's the subtleties are very important um which is why we're this is why interpreting the atonement is a life's work i think but anyway that's where i am at the moment
0: so. uh thanks very very helpful remarks they were gonna be in the next episode but i guess now they'll be here <laughs> <laughs> okay uh yeah absolutely so thank you i mean thank you for not allowing people to to think i hold piper's position on the subject <laughs> okay great <laughs> I will just say this very simply. God did not punish Jesus. Exactly. We'll talk we'll talk some more in the next episode. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experientialtheology.